Hello all and welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown, your weekly look at the IT news of the week, brought to you by Gestalt IT, it's in the name. I'm your host, Rich Straffolino, editor with Gestalt IT. Joining me from across I-90 is the one, the only, Ken Nalbone. Ken, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Rich. Good to talk to you. How do you feel about 90 there, Ken? Is it a highway of choice for you? Is that actually around you? I know it goes into... It's not. I don't. So I'm, I'm guessing I'm going you know, make my way to I-90 if I was going to come visit you over in the northeastern Ohio area, and I'd probably make my way over via, I don't know, I-70, I think, into Ohio. And okay. then, that sounds about yeah. right. Yeah. Uh, those nice, nice around numbered uh, highways there. Thank you for our international highway system, of course. We're going to get started, though. We had a jam-packed uh, week full of news, so we don't have time to cover all the stories in quite the discussion. We're going to do a little segment we're calling News or Nah. Ken, I'm going to set up the story. You just tell me, is this news or not? So, yeah, maybe let's do this. Facebook had some news. They introduced white hat settings for security researchers, allowing them to break certificate pinning and inspect their own traffic, you know, kind of sniff around there, analyze it, do all that good stuff. Ken, News or Nah? Nah, Microsoft, I'm sorry, no, Facebook. So, sorry, I had, I've been watching a 90s documentary, so I have <laughs> Microsoft on the brain. Uh, Facebook, who can't salvage their reputation as good uh, custodians of privacy, they're just trying to you know, set themselves up as good cybersecurity citizens instead. Yeah, good luck, guys. You got a little more, more work to do there. Yeah, I can't wait till this inevitably blows back and uh, someone excellent gets this activated, uh, and then it's a whole <laughs> kerfuffle. That's right. Speaking of things that can't possibly blow back, Google announced the formation of the Advanced Technology External Advisory Council to examine ethical questions around AI and ML, and particularly with ML, looking at fairness in ML uh, algorithms, particularly around face recognition, those kind of things where there's questions of uh, diversity and representation. Ken, news or not? Well, at first I thought this was going to mean that the robot uprising was canceled and I was excited, but then I, you know, kind of dug a little bit deeper. There's not much here yet, so it's not really newsworthy yet. Yeah, it's important to kind of understand what Google and companies like them are going to do with all this data that they have and all the AI and ML um, that, that they can apply to it. Uh, there's nothing really here yet. Yeah, I, I uh, was impressed to see some impressively uh, cross, uh, what is it? Uh, cross-disciplinary bona fides with a lot of the council members. Mm -hmm. But yeah, until until we maybe see some research papers or some some things that Google is actually going to implement upon their advice. Uh, yeah, that's, yeah. Uh, coming up next here, pouring some out here, Intel announced that they will stop developing new compute cards that provided a credit card size swappable package of CPU, RAM, and storage for all-in-one devices or point-of-sale machines. Ken, news or not? Nah? Considering I didn't know this product existed until they canceled it, I'm going to say nah. Um, you know, it was a young product. I think they released it in around 2017 or something like that, and they're canceling it already, which means adoption was not very good. So nothing really to talk about, I guess. Nobody's really going to be impacted by this announcement. Yeah, I always felt they should have maybe targeted it at like laptops or something like that, where, you know, as a consumer, I... I don't want to have to be locked in. It'd be nice to be able to just swap in everything and keep the same display, keyboard, things that I like, and just swap out, you know, kind of the the compute part. That would be kind of cool. I guess it'd be a nightmare for Windows licensing, maybe. But anyway, it's dead. You could still buy one through the end of 2019 uh, if uh, if that's how you're feeling. All right, Ken, up here next, Volkswagen and AWS announced a partnership to build Volkswagen Industrial Cloud, a digital production platform to transform manufacturing and logistics, at least according to a press release. This will use real-time data from over 122 plants to manage overall effectiveness. News or not? 
Kind of, yes. This specific announcement, not really, but the fact that it's just another and a bunch of recent announcements of large commitments to use AWS by large companies, uh, you know, basically... Amazon is tooting their own horn to remind people that they are the king of public cloud and it doesn't look like they're slowing down anytime soon. They just need to watch out or Elizabeth Warren might try to break them up in the near future, <laughs> according to her. Well, so I, and, and I thought this was interesting just because of the pure industrial application of it, right? So it's mm -hmm. you know, kind of taking all those industrial IoT sensors and really aggregating that across sites. It's kind of cool. Um, it, yeah, it is a nice change of pace from yet another SaaS offering choosing uh, AWS as a cloud of choice. Well, of course you would. They have the most tools for you. But yeah, the industrial application is a cool kind of different take on that. Another kind of cool different take. Researchers have created a millimeter scale Bluetooth low energy device that uses 0.6 milliwatts or 600 nanowatts, if I know my metrics, and can last 11 years on a coin battery. Aside from my lack of knowledge of metric adjectives, can news or not? I think so. I think this is really cool. And innovations like this just help the proliferation of IoT and sensors. Um, people keep finding new uses for these kinds of devices, and it'll be interesting to see what kind of innovations and also security issues devices like this raise. Yeah, I was going to, you know, sub news or not nah qualifier here. On a scale of one to 10, how much closer does this get to the dystopia where <laughs> we all have these tiny fingernail, like, like things that could fit in your fingernail sensors? Kind of like the minority report, you can't go by anything without getting an ad shoved in your face because they know everything about you as soon as you walk by type of the situation. Unless you get new eyes uh, from an elderly yeah. Asian man, yes. And, and they have BTLE uh, yeah. embedded in them. <laughs> in your eye. Oh, in your eye. Oh, God, no. All right. Uh, <laughs> that kind of uh, brings us to the end of News or Not. And the bleakest note possible, um, which really is my goal every single time we do it. Speaking of bleak, uh, Asus didn't have a great week, you guys. Uh, Motherboard reported that Kaspersky Labs found malicious actors had compromised a server for a software update tool from Asus, causing the company to install a malicious backdoor on thousands of computers over five months in 2018. Dubbed Shadowhammer, evidently by a 12-year-old, the file <laughs> appeared as a signed update from Asus, and researchers estimate it hit roughly 500,000 machines, although, like to put this into context, that sounds really, really bad, and it is. Um, but looking at the malware, it was kind of specifically targeting around 600 uh, uh, different MAC addresses. When downloaded, the malware would uh, compare the MAC address to a hash list of values, and if it found a match, it would call back to a fake Asus support site, download a second stage backdoor. Asus confirmed the hack was from an advanced persistent threat, aka probably from a state actor uh, and advised that the latest version of the file uh, of the live update was fixed they're introducing end-to-end -end encryption blah 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 was this won't happen again um, please don't yell at us too much uh, this appears to have been a highly targeted government sponsored hack ken does zero trust now apply to manufacturer updates too um i think i feel like it already did in the enterprise at least because i don't know anybody who wouldn't you know wait a little while before applying patches and updates and kind of vetting them a bit to begin with, unless it was some hugely critical, you know, patch that was going to uh, plug a security hole or some kind of, you know, flaw that bug that you were running into. So I think, you know, this only heightens the attitude that, that most professionals have towards, you know, um, applying updates uh, in, in the enterprise. However, Asus has a lot of consumer devices, and these were most likely consumer devices that were affected, and your general consumer is not sophisticated enough to notice this may have been something that even auto-updated itself. And it's significant because somebody had to make their way into the supply chain, essentially, of the software development lifecycle over at Asus to be able to pull this off. And it kind of brings me back to the big story that broke around the Supermicro supposed hardware hack last year that was never really verified, and people saying, not only is 
is this unlikely? It's dumb because if you really want to infiltrate somebody, you're going to do it at the software level. And this is exactly what has happened to Asus. And so it's just kind of, you know, proof that you really do need to watch out and you can't trust anyone. And if you have been trusting your hardware manufacturer to deliver you the you know, software updates, firmware updates, um, without question, think again. Yeah, and this is kind of a, a side effect of, I mean, I just it's just kind of the nature of anytime you have, I mean, this is for all intents and purposes, a Windows machine, right? I mean, you can install Linux on it mm-hmm. or whatever. But, you know, when you don't have that one throat to choke, especially as a consumer, you know, you're just kind of at the whim, you know, you, you kind of do have to trust like, okay, they're, they're saying they're going to update my drivers or they're going to, you know, in, in, install some sort of update that should be beneficial to me. Um, usually, you know, they say it like it, it, I, I have a lot of sympathy for consumers that have to deal with this because, you know, uh, you know, your family tech guy is always like, make sure your system is patched, install the latest up like this. Like my advice, if, if my mom had gotten this and called me up and said, Asus wants me to update this live thing, should it? Yes, of course you should do it uh, unless it's going to install like an Acrobat reader or something like that. Just uncheck that box, install it. You're good. Um, but yeah, uh, kind of it has to be kind of frustrating as a consumer if you were affected by this. And I have to I have to wonder, um, you know, did you know, I'm thinking it's, you know, China or Russia are usually the two big state-sponsored actors for a lot of mm-hmm. these, these hacking attempts. I have to wonder, like, did they get a picture of someone that they, you know, they wanted to, to hack that had an Asus laptop? So they're like, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to compromise <laughs> this entire update system just to get access to this. And, and you know, we have a rough idea of what his MAC address. I don't know even how you get that. But no, no idea. <laughs> we're, we're, they're, it feels like they're just going after one machine, and this is just a very elaborate attempt to do so. In which case, I want to see a thriller in there where there's a scene where there's just a dark room with a bunch of people with CRT monitors yelling, cut the hard line. That's, that's <laughs> really what I want out of this. Best case scenario. Good um, luck with that. Worst case scenario, um, if you're running uh, some virtual machines, is that you get featured uh, at a Pwn to Own hacking competition. Uh, this year, basically, if you're not familiar with Pwn to Own, they have a number of challenges where they're like, okay, um, hack Chrome. You know, they have uh, Chrome, all the major browsers, Safari, um, Internet Explorer used to be, but Edge now. Um, and then they also this year did a Tesla Model 3, like to hack a Tesla Model 3. And they have competitions. If you are able to do a hack within the record amount of time or demonstrate a previously unknown exploit, you win some prizes, free laptops, cars, that kind of thing. Kind of cool. This year, researchers Amat Kama, Amat Kama and Richard Zhu demonstrated an exploit that allowed a Windows 10 VM using a site uh, in Edge to uh, could be used as a vector to execute code on a hypervisor. This used a type of confusion bug in the Microsoft Edge browser, then used a race condition in the Windows kernel, followed by an out-of-bounds write in a VMware workstation. So basically the whole idea of VMware uh, 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 isolation, thank you phone, uh, has been uh, uh, you know kind of exploited there. This is the second year we've seen VM escape plugs at Pwn to Own. This doesn't require local access even. Last year, at least, you had to kind of be there to exploit it. Should we be rethinking VMware isolation as a security principle, Ken? Uh, hopefully we weren't relying on VM isolation as uh, the sole security principle to begin with anyway. I certainly hope nobody was. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's worth mentioning that all these hacks that have come about in recent years that relate to VM escape have been on what you call a type two hypervisor, meaning it's running on top of Windows or Mac or something like that. It is not the bare metal hypervisor that's used in the enterprise and data centers. Mm-hmm. That being said, if you can prove it out on a type two hypervisor, there might be enough shared codes, things like this might be possible in the type one hypervisor, especially since we heard that uh, when Spectre and Meltdown were you know, announced last year that 
the, the most vulnerable situation was shared hardware VMs running in cloud providers, for example. So it is something to keep in mind just because you're in a VM, you cannot ignore other security measures. You have to basically be as vigilant as ever. In fact, probably more so because we keep just hearing about different ways that it's possible to get hacked. So, you know, Increase your defenses, also increase your response plan. Figure out how you're going to respond to some kind of hack or ransomware or whatever the case may be because there are just more and more vectors now that you're vulnerable and you can't necessarily control all of them. And this is a perfect example of that. And that's a really great point about the the platform that the hypervisor was on. But and I also want to point out there wasn't a competition to do a bare metal hypervisor. You know, this was mm-hmm. okay. You know, see if you can do this exploit. Uh, you know. Which is weird to me that they never include a bare metal hypervisor. It's like, wouldn't you want that to be the attack vector anyway? If you were an attacker, not somebody's laptop, a developer <laughs> creating an application, or some guy who needed a Linux VM so he could do a certain thing. But hey, this enterprise is using a bunch of VMs on. A, on a bunch of servers in a cloud or in their own data center, and we can get access to them by finding an exploit on the bare metal hypervisor. Well, and maybe, you know, VMware or, you know, uh, Microsoft or, you know, one of the other major uh, uh, hypervisor mm-hmm. providers should be hosting. I mean, I'm sh- I know all of these companies have, uh, you know, bug bounties and that kind mm-hmm. of stuff, but, you know, maybe something more high profile to really raise awareness of that. You know, I mean, I guess if you're VMware, you don't want like a, you know, a press release going out that, you know, <laughs> VMware security owned in three seconds by a website. It's not the best headline you want out there, but... Well, the good news is Edge is being canceled anyway, or, you know, changed into a Chromium-based browser. So this will just disappear, right? And we won't have to worry about it anymore. We'll just have one category where there's just an even bigger surface here. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's never uh, hurt us in security ever. Uh, so, Ken, do you want to be exhausted uh, by a story about a Jedi that's even more depressing than The Phantom Menace? <laughs> Well, at least it's not Attack of the Clones. So. <laughs> this is very true. Uh, it's certainly less boring. Um, so let's uh, let me just set up uh, a little context here. The ten billion dollar Joint Enterprise Defense Infrastructure Project has been controversial ever since the Defense Department announced in 2017 that they would be using a single cloud provider to modernize their infrastructure. This is. I guess not unprecedented, but similar projects with the Navy and other uh, branches of the military have used multiple vendors when it comes to, you know, kind of moving their infrastructure to the cloud. So notable that DOD, uh, the Pentagon specifically, was looking to just use a single vendor. Uh, Understandably, this caused IBM and Oracle to file protests with the Government Accountability Office, since a single vendor would seemingly favor AWS very strongly, especially, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, looking uh, at the 2017 landscapes. Uh, These protests were denied, but have come under new scrutiny after Amazon uh, brought up, uh, excuse me, after Oracle brought up the involvement of a former Am- or former slash current Amazon employee. It gets a little complicated. Uh, Deep Ubhi worked for AWS Recruitment from 2014 to 2016 with startups. And uh, uh, after that point, worked with on the Jedi Project for seven weeks in 2017. He recused himself in, 20, in October 2017, subsequently quit a, uh, uh, the Pentagon and a restaurant startup that he had to take another position in AWS. Although it's notable it's on the commercial side, not the government side. Following me so far, Ken. Kind of. Man, I I should have read the notes better. This is getting very confusing. So Oracle is now claiming that he had a a hand in shaping Mm -hmm. the contract process. They're citing like Slack messages and stuff like that. And the Pentagon announced that they're reviewing new evidence after initially clearing him of any conflict of interest. Some have actually speculated, uh, I'm thinking of a New York Times, some sources quoted by the New York Times, that if anything, this benefits potentially Microsoft, um, as Azure has only grown you know, more mature over the, the past basically two years. Um, mm-hmm. But I, Ken, I wanted to kind of bring up this idea of, uh, you know, Oracle is going to complain, even though they're, whenever you look at the, the, the pie chart of public cloud providers, they're like a subsection of the tiny other slice. Um, 
what about the idea of a single vendor approach being a security concern, right? Um, that one was weird, right? Okay. I, like, why are you not going to say, hey, the government is essentially enabling AWS or whoever they choose to be a monopoly instead, because that's a big deal, antitrust. But instead, you're going to say it's a security issue. Yeah. Where's your head at? And, and I, I want to put this also, there was a, a story, I think just today coming out that Oracle is laying off a substantial portion of its cloud infrastructure division, about 350 jobs, not a Big layoff in terms of overall Oracle employment, but really big for you know that that kind of new insurgent uh, kind of cloud business. I, in that context, doesn't picking a, isn't the justification for for seemingly favoring AWS seem justified? Maybe, but uh, I think there are going to be a lot of folks who say you shouldn't just choose one regardless. Um, a lot of people are big fans of multi-cloud. Uh, spoiler alert, I'm not, at least the way that most people define multi-cloud being you're going to have the ability to move applications and data across clouds at will easily, giving me a bargaining chip and everything's going to be wonderful. We're all going to sing goodbye. That's not going to happen. Uh, <laughs> a, but a true multi-cloud strategy, in my mind, means you run the application and put the data in the cloud where it makes sense based on the use case. And of course, I think we see the enterprise is already doing this and they will continue to. It also depends on what you define as a cloud. You might be standing up a lot of your in-house built applications on AWS, but you're using Microsoft for you know email and office. And that's still different clouds for different purposes. So if uh, the Pentagon is saying they're basically going to just use AWS for everything and not find any reason to use any other cloud provider, be they, you know, things like IaaS and PaaS or just, you know, SaaS offerings as well, then that, that, that kind of is, I agree, not the greatest strategy. Now, making the arguments that it's a security risk, I don't really buy into. Uh, maybe that you could say that it's just bad policy from an organizational standpoint, then yes. But then again, we're talking about the government. So <laughs> why, why would we be surprised? I mean, it it does seem like such, I mean, first of all, you want to you know, question, and I, and I think that was at least IBM's maybe argument uh, to the Government Accountability mm -hmm. Office that this, you know, this kind of falls maybe into a more monopolistic uh, mm -hmm. argument. Um, but, you know, the the sour grapes of being like, this this guy, you know, that worked for seven weeks on this project, this multi-billion dollar project, um, had this outsized influence, you know, I mean, by all account, you know, certainly a knowledgeable guy, uh, seemed like, uh, you know, I was kind of reading the prof a little bit of a profile of him in uh, the New York Times. And, you know, definitely seems like an entrepreneur, smart guy, but mm -hmm. I, that just seems like such sour grapes on Oracle's part to try and like, like what's, I guess, what's the end result here? I mean, they've already committed to this single vendor approach. I don't think that's going to change. It certainly is not going to be Oracle, right? I mean, it, at this point, mm -hmm. how could you not, with, with that kind of scale, not go with either Microsoft or AWS? You know, if splitting it between the two, I don't see how that helps Oracle regardless, right? I think Oracle just really likes to go after government contracts for whatever reason. I know a guy who works for a consultant out in the D.C. area, and every time that we talk about cloud, he asks, well, do you support Oracle cloud? Because that's what my customers use, and that's what I you know, need to see uh, products uh, on. So and I guess this is just another example of them you know, being angry that they lost out on a big government contract when they've been in other ones. And it, I, I do think it is a shame that we're seeing layoffs in the Oracle infrastructure division because, you know, based on some of the stuff that they presented at Tech Field Day, they're really doing some cool stuff with kind of bare mm -hmm. metal cloud uh, uh, infrastructure stuff. And I, I think that is, you know, it's a niche market. You're never going to, you know, be running up against AWS with that. But I think they were starting to figure out what they were good at. And if they're mm -hmm. either pulling back from that or, or rethinking that, I think that's a shame because I do think there was a lot of good IP there. All right, coming up next here, Ken, uh, are, are you much of a programmer by chance? 
No, I, I can't say that I am. You know, I, I figured out how to do some scripting when I, back in my sysadmin days and automate the boring stuff, but I do not develop applications as a primary, you know, career move or even a hobby. Well, I can uh, print Hello World in Python, and that's yeah. about it. Uh, but the analysts at Redmonk released their biannual programming language rankings, looking at data from GitHub and Stack Overflow and seeing how language mindshare is uh, changing. They, they kind of uh, plotted this on a you know number of comments on Stack Overflow threads versus number of commits on GitHub by programming language. That was interesting to see who's getting talked about more on Stack Overflow versus getting commits uh, on, on GitHub. So I thought that was an interesting approach. Uh, but looking at the top 10, we really don't see any surprises. JavaScript, obviously, is far and away. Number one, I don't think it's going to change anytime soon. Uh, followed by Java, Python, PHP, C Sharp, C++. Interesting to see C Sharp uh, above C++. CSS, Ruby, C, and Objective-C, uh, with Swift, I think, coming in at 11. In the top 20, Microsoft's TypeScript excuse me, jumped four places to number 12, and the uh, JVM-based Kotlin moved up eight places to hit number 20. Interestingly, both Google's Go and R, the R programming language declined one spot each in the top 20, although it is still solidly in there. Uh, do these rankings tell us anything other than JavaScript is still supremely popular? Uh, it was JavaScript ever supremely popular, well, or is it just, just the, the one that we always used and not necessarily popular? Yes, JavaScript is like the COBOL of the internet age, right? It's oh, it's wow. the language that people first learned to use, you know, like twenty years ago, mm -hmm. and they've been developing apps in it for so long that they just continue to do so because hey, it works. Why not? <laughs> um, you know. I was a bit surprised to see Go and R so low in the rankings, given the amount of hype we've seen. But you know what this really tells me is that application developers are kind of as slow to change as the rest of enterprise IT, despite you know the interest in doing things the new way. Uh, either they have no choice, or they just kind of default into old habits and use what they know. Yeah, and it's interesting that the kind of the, the bottom half of the top 20 is where we see real movement. Uh, I think uh, mm -hmm. Red Monk kind of say, stated that the top 10 really doesn't change. It's really solidified, especially those top five or top five or six spots really aren't moving. And, you know, no one's for better or worse abandoning C++, right? Anytime, anytime soon. Mm -hmm. uh, but, um, but that lower 20 is really where we're seeing a lot of the emergent stuff. And uh, it was interesting that, you know, Kotlin is uh, uh, one of the, uh, had, had kind of fallen back a couple of years ago and now is kind of surpassed some of its other, um, some of its other rivals and kind of that, uh, uh, you know, JavaScript uh, based uh, programming language. It's, it's interesting. I also thought that to see, you know, the projects that are associated with Microsoft. I'm um, seeing that, so, you know, uh, TypeScript is is Microsoft. Obviously, C Sharp is, and, oh, they had one, oh, and it was uh, PowerShell. Uh, was also I was about to ask that. Did it make it on there? There's yes, the debate whether or not PowerShell is a language or not, right? Yeah. Uh, well, I guess it is now, according to this survey, at least. <laughs> it was it was like 12 or 13, I think, something like that. So it was interesting that huh. Microsoft now has uh, a substantial uh, presence there in the top 20. Uh, then obviously Apple has uh, Objective-C and Swift kind of in their boats there as well. So interesting to see the various influences of why things are in the top 20 like that. So Ken, uh, we we've talked about you know maybe the hopes that uh, of what new languages or or more popular languages maybe can do with uh, with applications. Let's get depressed again. The European Union passed the <laughs> copyright directive by a vote of three forty eight to two seventy four. This includes Article thirteen requiring EU members to adopt automated filters to actively prevent users from uploading copyrighted material, aka you can't send a take. Uh, the idea is not to send a takedown notice later, but to prevent it at the point of upload. And Article mm -hmm. eleven, which calls for content aggregators to pay a licensing fee to publishers for sharing anything more than 
insubstantial amounts of content, a.k.a. the Google News tax. There are a lot of cultural and economic implications, if there's going to have a chilling effect, that kind of stuff. Uh, but from an IT perspective, I'm thinking, comparing this directly to GDPR, in terms of a difficulty for IT, you know, how does this fall? Is it more or, or less than getting into compliance with GDPR? I think less enterprises are going to be affected by this than they are by GDPR, for example, because there's probably other than like a lot of cloud providers and SaaS applications, not a lot of content being uploaded by consumers that could potentially infringe on copyrights, mm -hmm. most likely. But those that are affected, you know, they may be in for a battle figuring out how to actually implement safeguards that comply with this regulation. But the EU doesn't really care how difficult they're going to make regulatory compliance for the enterprise. Typically, they seem to be consumer protection focused, although this isn't really that. It's more a copyright holder protection, yeah. which is entirely different class for the most part. But apparently, they raised enough of a fuss to basically get the EU to back them instead of the consumers for a change. So kind of interesting there. Yeah, it's been a long battle uh, coming. Uh, you know, this has had to pass numerous, you know, kind of legislative tests within the EU. And it's interesting that, you know, GDPR, for all of the gripes about implementation and, and the difficulties that that would entail and the practicality of it, I don't think there were a lot of people out there, even in the IT community, that were saying, oh, this is, a, you know, there was a lot of support for the ideas behind it, even mm -hmm. if you know, the implementation would be a nightmare. This is very much on the other side, uh, you know, to me, I mean, not to get into the, the politics of it or, or whatever too much, but, you know, this is very much a protect existing business model it feels like kind of mm -hmm. a bit of legislation there um is the riaa behind this one too <laughs> 20 years later i'm sure they would love uh to see this coming i do have to wonder though if this is a little bit more you know i, I guess gdpr kind of uh, spurred its own industry in terms of you know data management mm -hmm. or, or kind of spurred development and investment in that area and i wonder if this will do the same thing for kind of those content filters at least Maybe, but I would think it would be on a much smaller scale. I don't think that it's going to affect as many companies within the EU as GDPR did. That's just so broad and sweeping, and everybody's got some kind of personal data on you, basically, that they are now responsible for protecting with GDPR. Not as many probably copyright infringement concerns uh, as there are GDPR you know, violation concerns. Well, that just about brings us to the end of the Gestalt IT Rundown. Ken... Thank you so much for being on. Uh, what is this? Our third week in a row, uh, kind of to man in the uh, man in the ship together. Second or third, something like that. I'm kind of getting used to it. Counting is not my strong suit, Ken. I need to let you know this. But uh, what is my strong suit is plugging things that you are doing. So, Ken, where can people find more of your fine work? You can find me uh, writing on GestaltIT.com as always. Also, make sure to follow me on Twitter. I'm at Ken Nalbone. I'm the only Ken Nalbone there, probably. <laughs> And you can find me uh, writing for Gestalt IT as well, as well as on Twitter at Mr. Anthropology. That's MR Anthropology on the tweets. And hey, if uh, my voice sounds great to you and you want to hear it on another podcast, I was recently on the Ritual Misery podcast. So you can just search for Ritual Misery in iTunes. You can be talking about uh, some of the enterprise implications of Google Stadia. We kind of covered that on there, as well as the trials and tribulations of being a father, which has nothing to do with IT other than it can be annoying at times. Um, so for all of us here, for Gestalt IT, for Ken, for myself, for the world at large, for Europe under new copyright directive rules, here's wishing you and yours to have a super sparkly day. <laughs>